Let's open our Bibles at this time to the book of Galatians and the sixth chapter as we conclude our study of this great epistle, or as we come to the close to the conclusion of it, I guess we could say, Galatians chapter And I'd like to begin this morning with an old story of a poor country preacher who lived about a hundred years ago, back in the days when they were still using horses for transportation. And this poor country preacher's horse was very well fed and looked beautiful, was just a magnificent animal. But the preacher himself was kind of skinny and anemic looking, kind of sickly looking. (laughs) So one day his elders asked him why that might be. And he explained very patiently and very kindly to them, well, you see, brethren, I feed my horse and you guys feed me. Ouch. (laughs) <laughs> That's an old story told by J. Vernon McGee, and I'm, I'm much too kind a preacher to tell that story, but he wasn't, and so. Well, our subject this morning, I believe, as we begin in verse 6, is paying the pastor. In Galatians 6 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth, in all good things. And if you know your Bible, you know that that word communicate means to give or to share. And so Paul is saying if your pastor teaches you God's word, he needs to be paid. Now, if you're wondering why Paul brings this up at this point in the book of Galatians, I think it's because of what he just said in the previous verse, in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, For every man shall bear his own burden. Well, having said that, the Apostle Paul didn't want you to get the idea that the pastor has to bear his own financial burden. No, that's an area in which you must communicate with him. And this is something that is not optional. This is something that is mandatory. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I personally believe that we should give where we are fed the Word of God. If you eat at McDonald's, You wouldn't think of paying at Burger King, would you? (laughs) Wouldn't make much sense. And if everybody did that, it wouldn't be very long before McDonald's be out of business. Well, if you are fed the Word of God at your Grace Church, don't be sending money to Charles Stanley. Because if everybody does that, pretty soon the Grace Churches will be out of business. 
I direct your attention in 1 Corinthians 9 to verse 6, where the Apostle Paul says these words, Or I only, and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? If it is possible, dear friends, your pastor should not have to work a secular job. Now here I want to pause, because this is God's ideal, and God's ideal is not always possible, not always doable. My own church is small, and so for many years I worked as a painting contractor to help pay the bills. But here's the thing. When the Apostle Paul talks to churches like the Corinthian church, he tells them, Pay your pastor. But in Acts chapter 20, when Paul was talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, to the leaders, to the pastor teachers, he held up his hands and he said, These hands have ministered to my necessities. And so he was trying to tell them, Don't you be afraid to work. And I think if both church and pastor are doing the best they can, that there will always be a way where it will work out. And I'm happy to be able to tell you that for the past 29 years at my church, it's been working out. But in verse 7, Paul says, Who goes to warfare any time at his own charges? Who plants a vineyard and eats not of the fruit thereof? Who feeds the flock and, and eateth not of the milk of the flock? When it talks about going to warfare, your pastor fights for you against the errors of false doctrine. And false doctrine is the enemy of your very soul. And no soldier goes to war paying for his own gun and his own boots and his own rations. When Paul says, who plants a vineyard and, and doesn't eat of the fruit thereof? Your pastor plants the good seed of the Word of God in your heart every Sunday. When Paul says, who feeds a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Did you know that the Greek word for shepherd is translated pastor in Ephesians chapter 4? Well, you'd pay a shepherd to care for your sheep, wouldn't you? How many of you pay shepherds to pay, uh, for, care for your sheep? Raise your hand. <laughs> Probably don't have too many sheep, people who own sheep here this morning. Well, your pastor cares for your immortal soul beyond the teaching of the Word of God in so many areas. And so in verse 8, Paul says, Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Now, you probably are familiar with what he's talking about here. In those days, they would have a horizontal wheel. Underneath the perimeter of the horizontal wheel, they'd put the corn that needed to be ground. That hard grain had to be made palatable and digestible. And so they'd put a carrot 
on a stick in front of the ox and he'd follow it around and around and around and you thought your job was going in circles. And the cruel, cruel master sometimes would put a muzzle on it so that he couldn't reach down and partake of the very grain that he was producing. And the Bible is very clear about that. The Apostle Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25 and says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. And the reason this is such a, a really good illustration is because that's what your pastor does for you. He takes the hard seeds of the Word of God. Sometimes the Word of God is not so easy to understand, is it? He takes the, the hard seed of the Word of God and makes it palatable, makes it digestible for your spiritual nourishment. And the pastor who does this should be able to eat. If you muzzle him, you render him a lot like the Greek god Tantalus. And if you're not familiar with him, I'm going to take a minute to tell you about him because, quite frankly, not all of us grew up on farms and, and can relate to the cruelty of muzzling an ox. But I think you can relate to this. The Greek god Tantalus supposedly was accused of stealing Zeus's dog. I hate when that happens to a Greek god. <laughs> So he was punished by, by being forced to stand in water with a burning thirst. And every time he'd reach down to get some of the water, it would recede. And right above his head, there was a cluster of grapes. But whenever he'd reach up to get one, it would rise up. And from the name of this Greek god Tantalus, we get an English word. What is it? Tantalizing. Because you can imagine how crazy that would drive you, how stark raving mad it would make you. And if your pastor is underpaid, that's the position you put him in. And i got to tell you, most pastors do not lust after riches or possession. A lot of them are just lusting after paying the bills. And for some, it always just seems right out of reach. So Paul concludes verse 9, he says, Does God take care for oxen? Of course he does. God cares when the sparrow falls. So what's the point? The point is in verse 10, he says, Or saith he it altogether for our sakes. And I love what Martin Luther says about that verse. He says, well, obviously he says it for our sakes because oxen can't read. <laughs> In verse 10 he goes on, he says, For our sakes no doubt this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing, is it a big deal if we reap your carnal things? He asks these Corinthians. And then he says, if others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power. But we suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. When Paul talks about these others who had this power over the Corinthians, there were religious 
hucksters, religious charlatans who were sponging off of the Corinthians. And the Corinthians were supporting them instead of the Apostle Paul. And so Paul says, we have not used our right, our authority, our right to your, your support, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. You see, he didn't want to look like all of those hucksters who were just after their money. This was a wealthy assembly. So he refused their money, suffered the need of their money, so that he would stand apart from those religious charlatans. And I personally think this is the reason a lot of grace preachers don't preach on this subject, so they can stand out from the crowd. But this isn't my church, so I preach on this. In verse 13, he says, Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. If you remember how the nation of Israel was set up, the one tribe of Levi were the priests, and the priests were given no inheritance in the promised land, no place to farm, no place to plant a crop. They were totally dependent on the other 11 tribes. And that's God's ideal for us too. And you know that that's Paul's point because he says it in the very next verse. He says in verse 14, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should be paid. Is that what it says? No, it says should live of the gospel, not just be paid, make a living, a living wage. And my friends, it is not just a suggestion it says the Lord has ordained it. It is an ordinance of God. Over in Romans 13 we read that submitting ourselves to human government is an ordinance of God. And I suggest to you that messing with this ordinance of God is just as serious an offense in God's eyes as messing with that one. As we go now back to Galatians chapter 6, I want you to notice that we're not talking just about money, though. In Galatians 6, Paul says, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things, not just in money. Things like, well, these days, health insurance, is that a good thing? Well, <laughs> these days it is. Maybe a parsonage if you have it. You pay the, the man's utilities, a book allowance, all those things. You know what? What's really good about those things is they're sheltered from income tax, legally, and God expects us to be good stewards of his money, doesn't he? I think it's also talking about communicating to your pastor in the good things like encouraging him in the work. Taking some of his workload from him. You know, when I first got to my church 29 years ago, I was 23 years old, Quick, he's 52, and uh, I did just about, I did everything at the church. But you know what? 29 years later, I do hardly anything at the church, as far as the maintenance and all the other things that the other brethren have said here. Let me communicate unto you in these good things. 
In verse 7, Paul goes on and he says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now, once again, we're not farmers, most of us, but what he's talking about is if a farmer sows corn in a field, he doesn't reap wheat <laughs> or beans, right? That's a rule in ag agriculture, a fixed law. And the reason that Paul is saying it is because it's also a fixed rule in life, isn't it? Now here I want you to understand something. We're not talking about karma here. You know what karma is? How many of you watched the Antiques Roadshow on PBS? I like to watch the Antiques Roadshow. Nobody? Just a couple of you. Um, a year ago, I think it was, they were doing a show from Reno, Nevada. And they took a little excursion over to uh, the ghost town of Virginia City. And they went to the cemetery in the ghost town. And the headstones there were all made of wood from back in the West, old West days. And over the years, 125 of the headstones have been stolen as souvenirs. But you know what happens? A couple times a year, one of them is returned with a little letter saying, you know, ever since I stole this headstone, bad things have been happening to me. Uh, I got divorced. I got cancer. And the world calls this karma. You know, what goes around comes around. If you uh, steal a headstone, that's an evil thing, and some evil is going to come to you. I think it's the Chinese yin and yang that uh, Ed was talking about, Dr. Bedore was talking about the other day. This is not the law of reaping and sowing. If you smoke cigarettes and get cancer, you've probably reaped what you sowed. Do you see the difference? There's a direct cause and effect in the law of reaping and sowing. It's not some mystical karma thing. If you drink heavily, you will damage your liver and you will have reaped what you sowed. If you engage in extramarital sex, you're going to reap probably a social disease. I know a lady, dear lady, grace believer, maybe 10 years ago, already married with children, got a little frisky, began cruising the bars, picking up men, and she also picked up herpes. And she will have it the rest of her life because there is no cure. Being saved does not mean you are exempt from the law of reaping and sowing, does it? You still have to reap. And getting saved doesn't wipe out all the past sowing you've done. I, I get letters from prisoners all the time who are genuinely saved through the ministry of people like Brother Ken. But they still got to do the time, don't they? They still got to reap what they sowed. So now, why is Paul bringing this up at this time? Oh, well, it's an important end to our study of the book of Galatians. Because the theme of Galatians is we are not under law. The law said, if you're good, I'll bless you, God says to Israel. If you're bad, I will curse you. 
And Paul knows it's natural to think, well, I'm not under the law, so, you know, I can sin all I want. And it's true, you're not under the law. God won't curse you if you sin. But you're still under the law of reaping and sowing. Now, a lot of Christians don't know this, so they live in sin, and then they're surprised when they reap what they sow. (laughs) But no farmer was ever surprised that he sowed corn and he reaped corn. Martha, would you look at that? I sowed corn in the field and and corn came up. It's amazing. And don't forget the context here now. If you don't pay the pastor, you will reap a bitter man or a pastor who can't do his job well because he's working a secular job. You'll reap what you sow in that area also. There's another principle of agriculture in life that you need to know. You always reap what you sow, but you always reap more than you sow. You notice that? Farmer sows a hundred bushels of corn and he gets back thousands. No farmer would bother to plow the field, plant a hundred bushels of corn, water it, fertilize it, weed it, and care for it if all he was going to get back was a hundred bushels. <laughs> what would be the point? Just sell the hundred bushels or eat it or whatever. You always reap what you sow, but you always reap a lot more. No farmer was ever surprised. Martha, I sowed a hundred bushels and I got back thousands. Alert the media. Call the newspaper. Stop the press. And yet, God's people are always surprised when they, when they reap more than what they've sowed. Pastor, I, I only told this little white lie and now it's this great big mess. And they're surprised. Well, they shouldn't be. That's the law. The law of reaping and sowing. Pastor, I started out coveting something and then I ended up stealing it. Now I'm in jail. And they're surprised. Well, they shouldn't be. That's the law. The law of reaping and sowing. Pastor, I started out with just a little harmless flirting at the office. And I ended up cheating on my spouse and destroyed my marriage, and, and, and wrecked my family, and ruined my life. And they're surprised. Shouldn't be. That's the law. We underpaid our pastor. Now he's gone. That's the law. Verse 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked. If you think you can sin just because you're not under the law, (laughs) God is not mocked. Looks like he is, doesn't it? Because you're not getting this, you know, lightning bolts from heaven. But if you study that word mocked in Matthew 27, they mocked the Lord Jesus Christ before they crucified him. And they did it by putting a, a robe on his back and a reed in his hand as if it was a scepter of a king and a crown of thorns on his head as if it was a crown of gold. And then they bowed down and said, Hail, King of the Jews! But they didn't believe he was the king. And when we sin, because we're not under the law, we're doing the exact same thing. 
On Sunday we come to places like this and we bow down to our King. But if we live in sin, we're mocking God. But God is not mocked because we will still reap what we sow. Now notice in verse 8 what he says very, very carefully. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of God reap corruption. Is that what it says? No, no. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Right? That's different. You're just getting what you sowed. Now, by the way, it doesn't say you're going to reap eternal damnation, does it? As a Christian, if you sow sin, you're not going to reap eternal damnation. You're not going to reap a loss of salvation. You're going to reap corruption. What's corruption? Well, in the Bible, corruption is associated most of the time, I believe, with a rotting corpse. Rotting corpse. Can anybody tell me what Beethoven is doing in his grave? He's decomposing. Decomposing. Because he's a composer, you know. And because we inherit Adam's sin, our living bodies are decomposing, aren't they? They're corrupting. But if you live in sin... You hasten the process. We already talked about if you drink all the time, you're going to rot your liver and your living body corrupts a little faster. But if you lie or you steal, those things eat at your nerves because you live in fear of getting caught in your lies, getting caught stealing. That causes stress. Stress causes high blood pressure and heart attacks and strokes. You will corrupt your living body faster if you live in sin. And once again, when this happens, don't blame God. Of the flesh, you're reaping this corruption. Don't say, I drank myself silly for 40 years, now I'm dying, God must hate me. (laughs) Now notice he says, if you sow to the Spirit, though, in verse 8, he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Oh, wait a minute, time out now. Doesn't that sound like salvation by good works? You spend your life sowing to the Spirit and you reap everlasting life. Sounds like it to me. But you know it can't be contradicting all the verses that say by grace ye are saved through faith. So there has to be another explanation. I think we find it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Speaking of farmers... You hear about the city slicker who was driving down a country road, a dirt road, and he got stuck in the mud. Long about then, a tractor pulled up, and the farmer says, I'll pull you out for $50. He says, oh, thank you so much. He says, oh, that's okay. You're, you're about the tenth car today that I've had to pull out. And the man says, Wow. That's a lot of pulling out of cars. When do you have time to farm? At night? He said, no, at night I water the road. (laughs) Well, by now, I hope you're at 1 Timothy 6 if I haven't distracted you too much. Look at verse 12. 1 Timothy 6, 12, Paul says, 
fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. Now it sounds like unless you fight for the Lord, you don't get eternal life. Say, Pastor, you just made things worse, not better. <laughs> oh, wait, it gets even worse. Turn the page and look at verse 17. 1 Timothy 6.17 Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Charge them in verse 18 that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for them a, for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may Lay hold on eternal life. Uh-oh. Now it sounds like unless you give to the Lord's work, you don't get any eternal life. <laughs> What's the solution? Paul's not talking about obtaining eternal life. He's talking about laying hold on the eternal life you've already got. Not in the next life, in this life. When wealthy saints spend their riches on themselves, they're laying hold on this life. See the difference? When they invested in the Lord's work, they're laying hold on eternal life right now. You say, what about verse 12 where it talked about if they fight the good fight of the faith, they'll lay hold on eternal life. Oh, did you ever talk to a veteran? I talked to Dave Gross there, sitting there in the second row yesterday with his family served overseas, dodging the Scud missiles. And you know what? All United States citizens are free, but the veterans who fought for their freedom, they've laid hold of that freedom in ways that non-veterans like myself couldn't even begin to imagine. And all believers are citizens of heaven. Philippians 3 says so. But if you fight the good fight of the faith, you lay hold on your citizenship in ways that non-soldiers of the cross couldn't ever begin to imagine. And so that's what Paul's talking about here in Galatians chapter 6. As we go back there now in verse 10, he goes on. In Galatians 6 and verse 10, As we have therefore opportunity... Let us do good unto all men, not just the, the pastor teacher, especially them that are of the household of faith. Now, when he, when he talks about all men, we know he's talking about unsaved men here because then he draws a contrast. He says, especially the believers. Now, having said that, God doesn't expect every one of us to open a, a rescue mission or a soup kitchen. But that word opportunity... Each of us has opportunities to do good in material things to unbelievers, don't we? And hey, you know what? If you help them in material things, they're going to be all the more anxious to let you help them in spiritual things, won't they? But Paul says you need to remember to be especially good to them that are of the household of faith. Most grace churches that I know do this. They uh, have some means of helping the poor among them. A benevolent fund. Some of them take a special offering once a month, usually at the communion time when we're emphasizing our oneness in Christ. At our church, 
uh, when someone's in need, they just whisper it to me. And I get up and I announce there's a family among us in need, and the brethren always respond, always respond. In verse 11, though, the Apostle Paul goes on. He says, Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. Here we have proof that Galatians was written by a man, because only a man would call six chapters a large letter. You know, we're usually very few words. (laughs) When he talks about the large letter, though, that Greek word for letter... Uh, remember the sign they put above the Lord, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, in Latin and Greek and Hebrew? Well, that's the word there that's used. And so it, it actually sometimes refers to the actual letters, the Alpha, the Omega, you know. And so Paul is saying, I've used large letters when I wrote this letter. But it, the, the word is, the Greek word's also used over in Acts 23 when it talks about, or 28 when it talks about a, an epistle kind of letter. And I think it's talking about both here because Paul had to use big letters, he had to have a big epistle. Now, whatever they used, paper or whatever it was, it was not as common as it is for us today. It was scarce. And people didn't use big letters. They used the smallest letters they could because you didn't want to waste the paper. Why would why would Paul waste paper? Well, you see when he says, with mine own hand there. You see, Paul usually dictated his letters, didn't he? You get to the end of the book of Romans and it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you. And you say, you say well, wait a minute, time out. I thought Paul wrote this epistle. Well, he did. He dictated it to Tertius, who wrote it. And when Paul himself wrote the letters, he had to use large letters because he had eye troubles. And there's a lot of proofs of that in the Bible. We haven't got time to look at them. Go home and read Acts 23 where it says he didn't recognize the high priest in Israel. Well, let me tell you something about the high priest in Israel. He had this elaborate garb. (laughs) And the only way that Paul wouldn't have recognized him is if he couldn't see him. If you look back one page since it's close in Galatians 4 and verse 15... Galatians 4 and verse 15. Paul says, Where's the blessedness you spoke of? For I bear you record, if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Because he had eye trouble. And this was a pretty common thing in those days in the desert, you know, the hot desert sun. They don't have the nice high-tech sunglasses that we have today. Then they had sandstorms just like they do today and they didn't have the nice goggles that our troops over there are wearing. And Paul probably, maybe, had eye problems also because he was, you know, it was a common thing among stoning victims. Hey, when they stone you to death, they don't aim at your feet. They aim at your head, your face, your eyes. And in the service of his king, And in service of you and I as members of the body of Christ 2,000 years later, the Apostle Paul was probably near blind. As we go back to Galatians 6.12, we have to move on. and He gets to the end of at least my text. He says, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. He gets back to the circumcision and the law issue only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. 
Verse 12 says, these religious leaders that are bugging you Galatians, that want to get you circumcised and following the law, they just do it because they want to make a fair show in the flesh. Hey, religious leaders then are the same as religious leaders now. They desire to get as many people as possible in. Not only does it mean as much money, but it, it's a good, it makes a good show on the books that they keep. Fair show in the flesh. How many of you heard my message at Cedar Lake this year? Anybody raise your hand? Ah, you didn't miss much if you didn't miss. Except this story. And the rest of you, the ones who heard it, are going to have to go through it again. Pastor Steve Hamilton. Uh, of our Grace Church in Lena, Wisconsin. Used to be a Baptist pastor, and every week headquarters would call and say, how many decisions did you have this week? And the first time they called, he said, what do you mean decisions? And they said, oh, you know, how many people decided to get saved? How many people decided to get re- to re- rededicate their lives? How many people decided to get baptized? And Steve figured out right away why they wanted to know this. It was to make a fair show in the flesh. So they could boast about it in their annual reports. And even as a Baptist, he didn't much care for this kind of thing. So one week he decided to mess with them. (laughs) They called up, how many decisions did you have this week? He said seven. And they said, wonderful, what kind? He said, seven people decided not to show up for church this week. I don't think they miss him much now that he's a grace pastor, do you? Well, you know what they're doing. They're applying the world standards of success to the Lord's work, and God never does. You read the Bible, his people are always called the little flock, the remnant. In Isaiah chapter 1, a very small remnant, it uses those words. Pastor Sam used to say when... Those eight people got on the ark, they were a tiny minority, but when they stepped off, they were the overwhelming majority. <laughs> he says in verse 12, these, these false teachers desire to make a fair show in the flesh and constrain you to be circumcised lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Because if you stand for the truth of God's word, grace alone, you're going to be persecuted. Maybe not, you know, people beating you up or stoning you. But go home and read Genesis 21 where it says Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Well, it says that in Galatians chapter 4. And you go back and read Genesis 21, he just mocked him. That's all he did. But can't you take a little mocking? When you think of the Apostle Paul blind from his service, Hands so gnarled that most of the time he couldn't hold a pen. We could take a little mocking, can't we? I heard the bell, so verse 13 says, For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. They can't keep the law, but they want to put it on you. Religious hypocrites. Who ever heard of such a thing? A few years ago, there was a cult leader predicting that the world was going to end in 1992. Someone from a newspaper did a little investigative reporting. Someone from a newspaper did a little investigative reporting and found out he had bonds that wouldn't mature till 2002. 
If he really believed the world was going to end in 1992, how many think he would have cashed in the bonds? Religious hypocrites. And then the world reads the newspaper, reads about that, and they scoff at Christianity. They're no better. Remember John Lennon from the Beatles, his song, Imagine There's No Possession. I wonder if you can. Nothing to kill or die for, a brotherhood of man. Yeah, right. This from the man who lived in a Manhattan mansion who had a temperature-controlled room just to store his fur coat. The hypocrite. Mother Teresa helped the poor children starving in India, but you know what? There wouldn't have been so many starving children in India if they'd practiced birth control, which she preached against. Because she was of a faith that also opposed divorce, she opposed divorce, but she made an exception for a friend of hers, a friend named Princess Diana. Yeah, you know, we always think of her in such rosy terms, but listen. Hypocrisy is okay for unbelievers. It's okay for religious hypocrites and charlatans. You need to be the very best Christian you can be for the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be the shining example of the grace that saves you. You need to do what Titus says when it says, adorn the doctrine that you teach by your behavior. And I hope and pray that this conference has better equipped you to do just that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your riches of your grace and the moral responsibility it puts on us for those who instruct us in the riches of your grace. And may we all heed the warnings put forth this day that we too will reap what we sow. But Father, we think of the words that we read that in due season we'll reap if we faint not. How precious to know if we continue to fight the fight if we continue to give to the Lord's work, we have your word on it. We will reap. That's the law. Help us to be faithful in these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.